the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with David Chadwick. He is uh, the author of Superficial to Significant, What It Means to Become Great in God's Eyes. We're also going to talk with uh, Dr. H. Sterling Burnett. He's a Heartland Research Fellow on Environmental Policy and the Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News on the President's Withdrawal from the Paris Agreement, which, by the way, we'll talk about in a moment, isn't altogether clear what uh, if we've withdrawn from the framework or the agreement or, or what precisely the president meant. But nonetheless, we'll talk with him about that. We're also going to talk with Jean Mancini, president of March for Life. She's the co-signer, along with a group of uh, national pro-life leaders who sent a letter to the attorney general and the acting FBI director uh, suggesting investigations continue uh, and defunding of Planned Parenthood. This really is the result of work done by the 114th Congress, uh, both the House and the Senate. Criminal charges as well as regulatory violations were uh, uh, highlighted by both of these investigations, the uh, movement forward under the previous administration did not happen. So they're asking that the new administration take the issue up uh, with regard to Planned Parenthood. We'll talk with her more about that and what what sort of penalty uh, would uh, follow if, in fact, they were fi- found to be in violation. Well, as I mentioned, after days of drama and suspense and a lot of speculation, President Trump today announced that his administration will exit the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, so we're getting out, Trump said, among other things. The Paris Accord is very unfair at the highest levels of the United States. And we're talking about $3 trillion lost, $6.5 million jobs. Some suggest it only uh, represents a slight tick in uh, in the climate change, but others are saying, well, that stops the progress forward. Well, his decision fulfills a campaign promise. It satisfies strong Republican opposition to the global climate deal, but isolates the United States and is certain to bring and did bring condemnation from world leaders and critics in the scenic and the scientific community. Rather, in fact, some of the uh, criticism was uh, bordering on um, being uh, utterly um, what's the word I'm, I'm thinking of uh, it's sort of in times uh, prophetic um, uh, predictions following. Well, leaving the accord aligns the United States with uh, Syria and Nicaragua. Critics argue it will hurt the economy, but supporters say it will create jobs down the line. Uh, very stark disagreements. Trump didn't talk about uh, whether or not he accepts the notion of man-made or man-contributed global climate change, which used to be heating, and before that it was cooling. He didn't address that, just the economic implications. So there's still a lot of mystery as to where he stands on that element of the issue. Well, President Trump promoted his announcement uh, Wednesday on Twitter, prompting American allies around the world to weigh in on the consequences of the U.S. withdrawal from the global pack, uh, which by 
by the way, did not have any enforcement mechanism. Though there are no um, legal ramifications for pulling out of the accord, it does alienate America and diminish its standing as a global leader, some suggested. Trump, who made a statement from the White House Rose Garden, campaigned against the climate agreement during the 2016 election season. As a candidate, he vowed to cancel the Paris climate uh, deal during his first major policy speech on energy. Now, you don't just cancel it. It's not a singular event. It's really a process. There's the framework. There's the climate agreement. The quickest way to withdraw would be to uh, withdraw from the the framework. And it's not clear which of those two or both he did today. But anyway, in March of 2016, that was his first major energy uh, speech as a candidate. In that same speech, he slammed draconian climate rules. He vowed to cut any funding for United Nations programs related to combating climate change. In the past, uh, he has refused to acknowledge that humans uh, contribute to climate change and has dismissed it as a hoax. Well, the Paris Climate Agreement is a pact between nearly 200 nations to voluntarily reduce their greenhouse gas emissions in an effort to fight climate change. The U.S., the world's second largest emitter of carbon, would be required to reduce fossil fuel emissions nearly 30 percent by 2025. China, on the other hand, is sort of self-policing and would not be required to do anything for at least 16 years. And at that point, they would either declare themselves to be a success or a failure, but would not be required to make any adjustments in their progress. And that's true for most of the signatures as well. Well, former President Obama used his power as president to join the Paris Accord without a vote in the legislature, which many argued should have been the case. The Senate should have been called upon to um, uh, to ratify what was essentially a treaty. Similarly, Trump can use his authority to call it quits because there was no um, endorsement from the Senate. The president, uh, the current president, does not require that. And though the Paris uh, Climate Agreement is not legally binding, the decision to either stay or withdraw has been deeply polarizing, not only with lawmakers, but also members of Trump's inner circle, some of whom suggested uh, the United States should have stayed in the agreement. Well, Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon, as well as EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, had been pressing the president to exit the deal. Trump's daughter, Ivanka, as well as business leaders and other U.S. allies, have been pushing pro-Paris agenda, according to Politico. Well, business leaders, including Apple's Tim Cook and uh, Tesla's Elon Musk, had also lobbied Trump to stay in the agreement. However, many businesses uh, held to the opposite view on the subject. The president said it is his solemn duty to protect America, that he represented uh, the United States and not Paris. Uh, He said that uh, the Paris Agreement would devastate sectors of America's economy, that full compliance with the Paris Agreement would lower temperatures by two-tenths of one degree, and he called called, uh, Democrats, rather, obstructionist. So this was in addition to an energy statement. It was also a partisan statement against his primary opponents on the subject. In any event, the uh, United States has now officially announced it intends to withdraw from the Paris Agreement. And again, what that means precisely in terms of what happens next and uh, which element he's emphasizing is not yet clear. He did make the statement that he will begin immediately renegotiating now, that's, again, a very vague reference to who knows what at this point, but we'll certainly try to clarify, follow the story, uh, and try to make sense of what happens next. Fourteen minutes after four o'clock is our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to talk with David Chadwick later this hour. He's the author of Superficial to Significant, What It Means to Become Great in God's Eyes. There's certainly a contrast between what the culture says and what the scripture says. Um, Mr. Chadwick has been the pastor of Forest Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, since 1980. He's a popular speaker. He's an author of um, uh, It's How You Play the Game. He has an 
uh, uh, Doctor of, Div- of uh, Divinity uh, from Columbia Theological Seminary, and he'll join us to talk about that. Uh, later this hour. Also, we're going to talk with Dr. Sterling Burnett uh, to go a bit deeper in this decision, this announcement made by the president earlier today regarding the Paris Climate uh, Agreement and what that means, not just in terms of that affiliation, but the United States intention moving forward in terms of environmental policy. So we'll talk with him uh, about that later in the five o'clock hour. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, two of the most precious rights Americans possess are the right to express themselves freely and the right to practice their religion as they see fit. Both are enshrined in the First Amendment. But these rights are not absolute, and sometimes they clash with a duty toward others. Well, the Supreme Court is now considering taking up a case that may test these limits. Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Well, the case stems from a July 2012 incident at the Masterpiece Cake Shop. Charlie Craig and David Mullins asked Jack Phillips, who owned the cake shop, to create a custom wedding cake to celebrate their same-sex marriage. Phillips declined, saying that he didn't want to promote a same-sex wedding due to his religious beliefs. Well, Craig and Mullins filed a complaint with the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. The commission decided against Phillips, declaring he had discriminated on the basis of sexual orientation. It is a familiar story. The commission ordered the cake shop to change its policies, give its staff training on discrimination, provide quarter, uh, quarterly reports for two years regarding the steps taken to comply with the order. The Colorado Court of Appeals upheld the decision and the Colorado Supreme Court declined to hear the case. Last year, Phillips petitioned the Supreme Court to take the case, claiming the Colorado ruling violates the free speech and free exercise clauses of the First Amendment. The court may take its, uh, rather may make its decision any day regarding whether or not to hear the case. John Eastman, a professor and former dean of Chapman University School of Law, believes the free speech argument is strong because Phillips' work involved expressive conduct. He is creating something. Uh, whether it's a photographer or a cake maker or a T-shirt designer, he notes, they're engaged in expressive activity, which is covered by the First Amendment. In fact, he said, in the case of T-shirts or language on the cake, it's actual speech. But Ewan Cherminsky, dean of the University of California at Irvine School of Law, counters that expressive activity comes from the customers. If I choose the words on my cake, I'm engaging in expression, he said. The baker is simply putting my words on a cake. Of course, you don't put words generally on a wedding cake, so I'm not sure in this particular context that would work. But Cherminsky, he said that even if this is about speech, that doesn't mean the government can't intercede. And in this case, the interest in preventing discrimination outweighs other interests. For instance, he said the baker would lose in court if he were against interracial marriage and wouldn't bake a cake for an interracial couple. Well, Eastman suggested that we shift the facts and imagine a white racist who wants an African-American baker to bake a cake celebrating the Ku Klux Klan. If the courts tried to claim creating the cake doesn't implicate free speech rights, people would be howling. Well, Phillips, Eastman said, was willing to serve homosexuals in his shop, just didn't want to be forced to support their beliefs. 
or the wedding. As for the related free exercise of religion argument, Cherminsky, he said that under the Supreme Court decision, Employment Division versus Smith from 1990, state laws such as Colorado's anti-discrimination laws may limit what people claim as their religious right as long as the statutes are neutral laws of general uh, applicability and not aimed at religion. Well, Eastman agrees that the Smith ruling makes the free exercise argument a tougher sell, though he does wonder with Justice Scalia, who authored the opinion and is no longer on the court, if it isn't uh, time to revisit that precedent. Well, the general feeling is that the court will not take up the, ma- the uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop case. The justices have had this uh, case up for consideration an astonishing 16 times without putting it on the docket. Some experts believe the justices are waiting before they drop the case for one or more of the justices to write a dissent against denying the petition. There's a good reason the court would want to leave it alone, according to Professor Cheminsky. Uh, They're worried about opening the door to people discriminating in the name of religion. But if the case is heard, experts say, it will likely be a blockbuster. Eastman believes it could be bigger than the Hobby Lobby opinion a few years back. I think there's no question about that. That case allowed the company to be exempt from a contraceptive mandate due to religious beliefs. That case was limited in scope, but the court ruled in favor of Phillips. Uh, Rather, if the court ruled in favor of Phillips, it could mean there is a constitutional right that would trump numerous statutes across the nation. Depending on which way it goes, the same uh, scenario could be true. So we'll uh, continue to listen and uh, find out what the Supreme Court decides to do. In the meantime, another case that could qualify at some point in the future, a farmer's market and Facebook posts, have opened a new front on uh, courtroom battles over religious freedom. It started when Steve Tenz, who owns 120 acres, a farm in Charlotte, Michigan, expressed his traditional view about marriage on the farm's Facebook page. This drew a warning from the from an official rather more than 20 miles away in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, that if Tens tried to sell his fruit at the city's farmer's market, he could incite protests. So he didn't deny anybody anything, but he did express his traditional views about marriage. And that was enough to raise the ire of the uh, local um, farmer's market. Uh, no one showed up to protest that August day last summer, and Tens continued selling organic apples, peaches, cherries, and pumpkins at the seasonal market until Octo- uh, October, rather, as uh, he had done for six previous years. Nevertheless, East Lansing moved earlier this year to ban his farm, the country mill, from participating in the farmer's market when it resumes June the 4th. The city cited its human relations ordinance, an anti-discrimination law that includes sexual orientation. So Tenz and his wife sued the city for religious discrimination. As a Marine veteran who is married to an Army veteran, he told the Daily Signal, this was consistent with his philosophy of defending freedom. My uh, My wife Bridget and I volunteered to serve our country in the military to protect freedom. And that is why we feel we have the... I have to fight for freedom now, whether it's Muslims, Jews or Christians right to believe and live as they believe. Uh, The government shouldn't be um, treating some people worse than others because they have a different point of view, different ideas. Alliance Defending Freedom, a Christian legal aid organization, is representing uh, these uh, this family. In other words, he was forbidden from selling his wares at the farmer's market because he had on his Facebook page identified himself as holding traditional views. He's not being accused of having discriminated against anyone, treating anyone differently because of their sexual orientation, declining to serve someone because of his uh, religious beliefs, but simply having those beliefs and expressing them on his Facebook page was enough 
to prevent him from being welcome to sell his um, his apples and fruit at the farmer's market. Another example of why this issue ultimately must be decided by the higher court, and I suppose will ultimately be uh, decided by the higher court. Well, Hillary Clinton says she's not running for president again. I think most of us probably assume that, but she may be running out of excuses for why she lost the White House to President Trump, former FBI Director James Comey, Facebook, The New York Times, Russia, WikiLeaks, uh, misogyny, the pressure of high expectations, and the Democratic National Committee have all been among the people, organizations, and attitudes that she's saddled with responsibility in recent days for her stunning November loss, a race that uh, was hers to lose. Well, Clinton, who has uh, said she's writing another book, has often told her interviewees she takes absolute personal responsibility for the loss. However, in other questions, she spread the blame pretty liberally. And I mentioned a few of them, but uh, she blamed the emails, the New York Times, FBI director James Comey, the Russians, Vladimir Putin, uh, whichever Americans helped the Russians, uh, WikiLeaks, Donald Trump. Um, weaponized technology and fake news, the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, a double standard, right-wingers, you know, the right-wing conspiracy, voter suppression, misogyny, societal constraints on women, ineffective DNC, history assumptions, uh, and, and voters' assumptions, and so on. Meanwhile, a spokesperson for the DNC uh, said that that was absolutely false. She ran a poor campaign. She campaigned probably two uh, two times a week, spent more money to do less than most candidates, avoided certain areas of the country and suggested the DNC had nothing to do with uh, the loss of that campaign. Uh, She's writing a book, and where she goes next is uh, anybody's guess. But it seems to me she's in a position, having had a very successful political career, uh, that she could serve as a senior statesman position rather than um, reflecting back, sort of a pitiful, diminishing reflection back on why she lost when she probably has a great deal to offer Looking forward to those who seek to follow in her footsteps. She has established an organization that apparently is designed to do that. Um, But hopefully she'll uh, move beyond her current predicament and uh, look forward to what's next. All right. It's 29 minutes after four o'clock. We're going to take a quick break here in a moment. And when we return, we'll talk with David Chadwick. He's the author of Superficial to Significant. He's a pastor, and he's, uh, he writes about what it means to become great in God's eyes. It's quite different from what the culture says, and far too many of us are pursuing that kind of cultural um, admiration when, in fact, the Scriptures have some wise uh, counsel for us moving forward. David Chadwick, my guest, when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 34 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, the meaning of success may differ from person to person, especially those who strive for spiritual harmony and to live with deep conviction. So what's pleasing and acceptable, rather, to God compared to what society says is pleasing and acceptable? Well, in From Superficial to Significant, former pro basketball player turned pastor David Chadwick, he offers 10 fundamental that Jesus practiced and offered as an example of the Christian life. 
He played basketball at and graduated from UNC Chapel Hill, was coached under the legendary college basketball Hall of Famer coach Dean Smith. He believes there is a difference in claiming to be a follower of Jesus and living as one. Uh, Jesus called and coaches his followers, and when we practice these spirit-focused fundamentals, we become great in God's eyes and move from superficiality to significance. And he offers 10 fundamentals. Well, David Chadwick has been the pastor of Forest Hill Church in Charlotte, North Carolina since 1980. He's a popular speaker and the author of It's How You Play the Game. Uh, He has his uh, Doctor of Ministry degree from Columbia Theological Seminary, and he joins us today to talk about his book, How Do You Go From Superficial to Significant? Thanks for uh, joining us today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's great being with you. Well, this is an interesting title because we live in a culture where superficiality has been elevated to essentially a virtue. The more superficial and shallow and hollow you are in some quarters, that's considered um, the formula for popularity. What motivated you to take on the, uh, the popularity, if you will, of superficiality and to encourage your readers to seek the significant? Well, Georgine, I think I looked at the whole idea of what's going on in the Christian culture in America and the whole celebrity culture idea and how it's infiltrated the church. I mean, even I receive annually um, a survey from someone in Texas, I think it is, who wants to rate the 25 fastest-growing churches in America. And I've refused to fill it out all these years, <laughs> even though the church I pastor has uh, grown. It just seems so silly. Is, is the church now like our sports teams? We have a top 25. Uh, you, we seem to worship guys who should be called to feed a flock, not fleece the flock. And it just bothered me the more I thought about it. And I thought of true greatness, and I went to the Bible and thought, okay, what does Jesus say about true greatness? And that's what motivated me to write the book. Now, as a pastor, um, do you find it challenging uh, to to lead a congregation in a culture like ours and encourage them to seek uh, and to understand what it means to become great in God's kingdom as opposed to uh, great according to the uh, the dictates of the culture? Yes, it is. We live in a culture that is consumer-driven. It asks, what can you do for me first? Uh, it, it's a culture that seeks to be number one, uh, that seeks pride above all else. Uh, it su- seeks success above all else. And it's simply not a culture that is consistent with the call of Jesus to be humble, uh, to glorify God in all things, uh, to be a servant, not a superstar. Uh, all those things are a part of what made me write the book. And it is hard to teach that to people who are daily, via the media, receiving messages that it's all about their personal greatness, not about giving their lives up for the sake of others. In terms of what a, a walk looks like where significance is the goal, significance and success in God's eyes, what difference does it make in the life of the believer that who abandons the superficial in favor of um, pleasing God? Well, I think the first thing that is given to you is God's whisper of well done, and that should be the desire of every follower of Jesus. More than anything else, we want to align our wills with His will, and when we do so, we have that sense of His presence, the sense of we're really pleasing Him above all else. And then I think there's also the sense that we're advancing the kingdom of God, that we really are making a difference in this world. We're not living in a superficial relationship with God and with other people, but we're truly caring for what he cares about. And when that happens, Georgine, I'm just convinced that people start living according to their purpose. Joy fills their hearts, and they feel like they're 
more significant than they've ever been before. You write in your introduction that that, uh, the questions all Christians need to ask themselves are, am I faithfully following Jesus? Am I living as he lived? Am I doing what he did? Am I speaking as he spoke? Am I loving as he loved? Am I believing as he believed? Am I copying how he lived? Am I serving as he served? Am I mentoring as he mentored? Is my life imitating his? Those are really big questions. And you go on to write, if not, can someone really say he is faithfully following Jesus? So it seems to me this is a a bit of a measuring stick of whether or not we're really following him. We may know him to some degree from his word or maybe an initial uh, profession of faith, but are we really following him? Well, that's the question, isn't it? You know, when Jesus called his disciples, he said, follow me. Uh, In a way, he was saying, imitate me. As I live, you should do the very same thing. And I think sometimes we think that following Jesus just means getting our eternal passport stamped and we go to heaven Mm -hmm. and that's it. But that's not it. As you well know, Georgine, it's the call to follow him now, to advance the kingdom of God now, to live for him now. And as we do so, he is pleased as we follow him. But again, it's a sense of following him, looking at him, and not just copying him, but it's putting his life that is in us through receiving his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit living within us, flowing through us, and allowing us to experience the very things that he experienced. You write that the intention of this book that we're talking about, From Superficial to Significance, is to give 10 fundamentals of the Christian faith that Jesus repeatedly practiced. So it encourages us to look to his life and to answer the questions that uh, I just read that were, are posed in the book in a way that, that tells us, am I really following Jesus? Yes, you know, what I was trying to do was to draw some upon my basketball experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I played for Dean Smith, one season we were predicted to finish near the bottom of the Atlantic Coast Conference, and Coach Smith thought we could still be very good. So on the first day of practice, he called us together in the huddle, and he held up a basketball, and he said, gentlemen, this is a basketball. And all of us kind of snickered because, you know, we were high school All-Americans. We always played the game and knew how to play it. But then he said, we're going to learn to play the game the way it's supposed to be played. And, Georgine, we played the fundamentals every single day over and over again for the six weeks leading up to our first game. We ended up not only winning the conference but becoming one of the best teams in the country because we were fundamentally sound. The book that I wrote, From Superficial to Significant, is trying to claim ten basic fundamentals of the Christian faith, believing that if we practice them regularly, we will not only imitate Jesus, but we will truly make a difference in this world and allow the kingdom of God to advance. So so that's the purpose of the book, to claim those fundamentals of the faith and ask people, would you dare follow them with all your heart, soul, mind, and might, and make a difference for our Lord? Mm. You begin with what uh, some theologians call the great exchange. Uh, Tell us what that means and how it applies to being great in God's sight. Sure. That's the gospel. That's where it all begins. Um, I'm a baseball fan, and on July the 31st, every year they have the trading deadline. Teams trade players, and after the 31st, they can't do any more trades. Well, the great exchange is basically God's best trade. He comes to us and says, I'll take all of your sin, muck, junk and unrighteousness, and I will then give you the perfect righteousness of my son, Jesus. Your sins will be forgiven. They will be remembered no more. So we give up our unrighteousness in a trade and receive Jesus' perfect righteousness because of his death and resurrection by grace through faith 
Who wouldn't want that great gift? That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that our bad has been traded for his good, and now we live in his righteousness. That's the great exchange, as again, you noted, some theologians call it. And I just think it's the greatest trade that's ever happened. How could anyone refuse that wonderful trade? You make the point that 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 trade, that great exchange, uh, really relates to daily living. It's not a singular event. It is a, a life lived day after day as we are following Jesus. Yeah, most certainly. One of the things I teach in the book is not only the need to preach the gospel uh, through our lives to all of the world, not only is it to receive the gospel for that eternal gift of salvation, but it's also to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day that we live, not listening to that voice of the evil one that experiences condemnation in our souls, but to believe that we truly are saved, forgiven, and are adopted sons and daughters in the family of God. And if we could begin to resist condemnation because we believe the gospel is true, having made the great exchange not once but every day of our lives, then we live for him, and his very power flows through us to a dying world. But it is something, Georgine, that we need to claim every single day, as one theologian said, we've got to learn how to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day. Mm. You end each chapter with questions to ponder. So this isn't just an academic exercise. You're encouraging readers uh, to really uh, apply what God's Word says uh, about our walk of faith um, in a very practical and uh, meaningful way. Yes, it's really a self-study, if you will. I give a chapter regarding my view on all these different fundamentals of the faith, what greatness is in God's eyes, and then after each chapter, I ask people to look at these questions and do an introspection, do a self-examination. Um, we all need to do that on a regular basis, just like we go to the doctor to get an examination annually or even more so to make sure we're in good physical health. We need to do self-examinations to make sure we're spiritually healthy, and that's what those questions are intended to do, and I hope they'll take people a long ways toward being able to answer, am I being superficial or significant yeah. in the sight of God? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I think these are really good questions. You, you cannot escape really thinking more deeply about uh, not just the general story as it, as you read it in Scripture, but how that relationship that God calls us to, um, how He's calling us to walk it out. So these are great questions that I think lead the reader in a way that's, uh, that's edifying and will draw us closer uh, to understanding and closer to Him. That was my intention, Georgine, from the very beginning. That's why I spent all of those months uh, tirelessly writing this book. I wanted people to have a deeper relationship with Christ, follow Him more faithfully, and again, advance the kingdom of God and hear at the end of their lives, well done, good and faithful yeah. servant. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Again, we're talking about the book, From Superficial to Significant. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 49 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, From Superficial to Significant, What It Means to Become Great in God's Eyes. Pastor David Chadwick is my guest. Annie Graham Lotz, she says this about uh, the book, I commend David Chadwick to you as a man who loves God's Word, God's Son, and God's people. It doesn't get much better than that. Um, let's talk about some of these other fundamentals of the faith, and I'd like to ask you to go deeper on a couple of them, but what are these fundamentals that we need to be uh, prepared to consider and follow? 
Well, they're the basic ways of following Jesus, Georgine. You know, as we talked in the first segment, uh, Jesus said to his followers, follow me. Um, and he wants us to look at his life and then let his life that exists within us by receiving him as Lord and Savior flow through us to a very dying and selfish world. So again, these fundamentals are the ten ways to follow him according to my understanding of what biblical greatness truly is. Now, one of your chapters is called The Great Commandment, and there's two parts uh, to this. Uh, that can be one of the more difficult ways to follow Jesus. I mean, he is perfect, and it's easy to love him, but talk about the great commandment and how that fundamental really uh, demonstrates whether or not we're superficial or we are living significantly. Well, you know that Jesus reduced all of the commandments uh, in the Old Testament to basically two, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and might, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So I felt like that needed to be two different chapters. So the first one was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and might. And what that means to make God the central focal point of everything you are and how you live your life, uh, making worship primary, uh, making God the master passion of who you are, where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and then everything else falls in line. So I talk a lot about what does it mean to love God with all that is within you. And then I went to the second chapter and talked about true greatness means then loving your neighbor. And the illustration that I used there, Georgine, was I have three children, and I once had a man come to me and say, I really want to bless you because you've meant so much to me in my life, and I'd like to buy your child a new suit of clothes. Uh, my son is a rather tall guy himself, 6'9", and so he needed a new suit of clothes. And I said to him, you know, you figured out something very important. The best way you can love a parent is by loving that which he loves most in the world, and that's his kids. Well, I think the same is true with the Eternal Father in Heaven. The best way we can love Him is by loving that which He loves most in the world, and that is human beings, uh, humans who are created in His image. So when we reach out to our neighbors, not only locally but globally, and when we especially care for the poor, the needy, the oppressed, and the disenfranchised, we are truly loving God. So those two chapters which talk about the Great Commandment suggest that true greatness in God's eyes is loving God first, and then loving that which God loves the most, our neighbors, especially the poor. In your chapter titled The Great Paradox, uh, you write that it is through prayer and worship that we can express our brokenness and dependence on God. They give evidence to times when we realize that God is God and we are not. They declare God alone is worthy of all praise and honor. Talk a bit about praise and worship and how that is a fundamental, but uh, sometimes when difficulties come, uh, it seems counterintuitive that praise and worship is the right response. Uh, such a good question, and in our culture, again, which is too increasingly superficial, we basically said worship is a feeling, and when mm. we feel like we want to worship, we raise our hands or bend our knees, and that's fine. Those are biblical expressions of how to love God, but the worship that we have for the Lord is not based on what we feel, but is based on who He is. We love Him because of His simple nature. And when we come to his loving holiness, we then worship him, even if we don't feel like we should worship him. The great paradox is that I use the illustration like in weightlifting for athletes. When we lift strong weights, it breaks down our muscles and makes us weak, but only then through a time period to become even stronger the next day. 
Well, as we worship God and realize our total uh, weakness and our need to depend solely on Him, that breaks down our own human strength and then allows us to be built up even stronger in Him. And, and that's the great paradox, as Paul called it, when we're weak, He is strong. Yeah. You reference Second Corinthians, the 11th chapter, starting with verse 24, and this laundry list of, uh, of woes, if you will, of the Apostle Paul. And then uh, you point out that he boasted in his weakness, which is a perfect example. You know, the, the man who pinned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit the bulk of the New Testament to, yes. uh, to hear and to re- be rec- reminded of his story and what he said through these circumstances uh, it illustrates precisely what you've described as someone who has lifted weights in my life. I know that principle applies, and we don't often think about it in our Christian walk. No, we don't, and it's not exactly the prosperity gospel, is it? No, it is not. <laughs> it, it, it is not the, the promise that everything's going to be perfect and God just wants to bless me. I mean, it's saying just the opposite, that we live in an imperfect body, in an imperfect world. Trials and tribulations will be ours, but as we learn to lean on Him, we're made even stronger in our faith and able to serve Him more faithfully. I really appreciated another chapter. It's titled The Great Perseverance, and I think it goes uh, quite well with what what you've just been talking about, that when we are are experiencing that kind of suffering that can ultimately produce greater capacity for us, there is a great uh, perseverance that God is calling us to. Yes, Georgine, the, the superficiality of our culture is that we live in a microwave culture and we expect to get things now. And it's even infiltrated our prayer lives that we think, if I just pray something and claim it in Jesus' name, God wants to bless me and will give it to me immediately. And nothing could be farther from biblical truth. The Bible talks repeatedly about having to persevere through trials, persevere through tribulations, and even in Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, persevere in our prayers, especially when there's injustice in our lives and around the world. So the theme of perseverance is throughout the Scripture. Its purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus, to make us realize that He's God and we're not God, and most of our problems come when we get those two things confused. So I really enjoyed writing the chapter on the great perseverance because A, it's biblical, but B, it's real. And it should encourage people, if they're caught in tough times, to keep persevering, keep believing, keep pushing through, and believing that in those trials, Jesus is truly conforming us to his image. I asked you at the beginning of our conversation what what difference a believer might experience if they uh, choose a significant life that's pleasing to God over the superficial life that's popular today. But I wonder if you would just um, reflect for a moment on what the body of Christ all across, let's limit it to this country, if believers uh, chose to do that and collectively we had the, the capacity to influence the culture in ways that perhaps are, are less possible now. What difference do you think it would make if the body of Christ were to follow these fundamentals and press into God in, in significant ways? My guess is that we would see um, the church being the church. Uh, we would see the church truly being salt in a saltless culture and making it better. Uh, we would see the light of the world in us and through us shining brightly into the darkness of this culture and drawing more people, the lost especially, to our risen Lord. You know, diamonds sparkle most brightly against the backdrop of black velvet, and that's why they're Mm. put that way. Well, I think Christians sparkle and shine most brightly against the backdrop of the darkness of a culture, and our culture is becoming increasingly dark. So don't get discouraged, listeners. 
just draw closer to Jesus, let his light shine even more through you. And I think if we would do that as a church in America, we would see a magnificent awakening and the lost being drawn to our Lord. Mm, I pray that would be the case. I want to thank you for uh, writing the book and taking time to talk with us, but I especially want to encourage you as you uh, pastor a congregation in Charlotte, North Carolina, you're doing significant work for the body of Christ, and I know it can be challenging and discouraging at times, but uh, I just want to acknowledge uh, how much we need you to continue in that role and pray that God would uh, continue to guide you in that leadership. Well, thank you, Georgine. I don't want to compliment you too much, but this is one of the best interviews I've had writing these books, and I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. I don't want to quit. I want to keep being a light for the Lord, and as long as He gives me breath and good health, I promise to be faithful and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, we need you. Thank you so much. Again, thank you, my friend. The, the book is, uh, is titled Uh, Superficial to Significant, What It Means to Become Great in God's Eyes. David Chadwick, a pastor, uh, the author. We're going to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. In the second hour of the program, we're going to talk with H. Sterling Burnett, uh, Ph.D. Uh, He's with the Heartland uh, Research. uh, He is a Heartland Research Fellow on Environmental Policy and the Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. We'll talk about the president's announcement earlier today, which isn't altogether clear whether um, we've simply withdrawn from the Paris Agreement, if we've uh, withdrawn from the framework and so on. We'll have to discover that over time, but uh, we'll discuss it. And then uh, Jean Mancini will join me. She's president of March for Life and one of the co-signers of a letter from pro-life leaders across the country suggesting uh, that the FBI and the Attorney General investigate uh, uh, Planned Parenthood as was recommended by the 114th Congress. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering, by the way, in case you'd like to know. Uh, this hour, we're going to talk with Dr. H. Sterling Burnett. He is a Heartland Research Fellow on Environmental Policy. He's the Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. We're going to talk about the president's withdrawal from the Paris Agreement and what that means, what it doesn't mean. We're also going to talk with Jean Mancini. She's the president of the March for Life. She's also a co-signer of a letter that was sent to the attorney general and the acting FBI director, urging them to investigate and consider defunding Planned Parenthood, although I'm not sure they have the capacity to defund. But anyway, to uh, pursue, I think there were several criminal charges uh, that the House panel um, and some regulatory violations that the House panel uh, recommended further uh, investigation. And the Senate came up with seven counts. Uh, they're asking that this new administration and under this attorney general that they pursue uh, those findings. So we'll talk with her about that letter and what's likely to happen. And if they were to uh, do what is being asked of them, what that would look like. And is there a penalty that uh, Planned Parenthood would likely face or what, what would that mean? So we're going to get into all of that uh, with Ms. Mancini when she joins me later this hour. Well, I noted Liberty Council was uh, asking the president a question uh, following his return from the first uh, trip to Israel by a sitting president and a visit to the Western Wall, as they call it there, rather than the Wailing Wall. And they pointed out that the president signed the Jerusalem Embassy Act of uh, 1995, six-month waiver, which continues to delay the move of the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, as a campaigner, the president uh, promised that he would do just that. And it's uh, it's a controversial move, but one that some suggest needs to be made sooner rather than later. 
So Liberty Council asked the question is, uh, when will the president fulfill his promise to move the embassy? Well, for nearly 70 years, the U.S. embassy has been based in Tel Aviv. Uh, when Jerusalem was unified under control of Israel in 1967, the embassy should have been moved to the capital at that time. On October 23, 1995, Congress passed the Jerusalem Embassy Act of 1995, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and requiring the U.S. Embassy to be moved there by May the 31st, 1999. Now, check the Wayback Machine. We're currently in 2017, and of course, that is yet to be done. Every president since 1995, including now Donald Trump, has signed the waiver enabling them to certify every six months to leave the embassy in Tel Aviv as stipulated in the Jerusalem Embassy Act. So you probably didn't know that the Congress has already um, uh, authorized moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, but that has simply been uh, postponed year after year, administration after administration. President Obama, he signed his final waiver of the Jerusalem Embassy Act in December of uh, 2016. President Trump's deadline to sign the waiver was midnight tonight. He has now signed that waiver. Now, many are frustrated by that, and it means that for the next six months, it's not likely that the uh, embassy will move. Well, Press Secretary Sean Spicer insisted that President Trump has not wavered on his pledge to move the embassy, saying it is not a matter of if, but when. And that's the big question, when, if, in fact, he intends to do it. Well, President Trump has to keep his promise to move the embassy to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. That's a quote from Matt Staver. He's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, president of Christians in Defense of Israel, and founder and chairman of Covenant Journey. Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem rather, has been unified for 50 years, and the embassy has remained in Tel Aviv. 50 years of keeping the embassy outside the capital of Jerusalem has not brought peace. Not moving the embassy to Jerusalem when President Trump promised he would move it, it will be seen as a sign of weakness among the enemies of Israel. It is time to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Fulfill your promise to move the embassy uh, during the 50th anniversary of a united Jerusalem, Staver said. Now, as we've been promoting the trip that uh, KPDQ and Salem Media are putting together for November of this year, we've emphasized uh, the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of Jerusalem. That's a peculiar statement to make, but it's really reflecting the unification of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. That's the 50th anniversary that's being celebrated. And many, as uh, Matt Staver uh, just uh, expressed, uh, many are suggesting this would be the time to make that move. It has been uh, authorized by the U.S. Congress since 1995, postponed by every administration since then. And as I mentioned, the president just signed. He had until midnight tonight to sign the waiver to give another six-month delay Um, He has now signed that, but uh, his press secretary, Sean Spicer, insisted the president uh, was not uh, was not wavered, uh, wavering on his plan to ultimately do it, but was not going to do it in these um, uh, at least uh, short term. Now, he could during that six months. Uh, make that uh, announcement, but at least for six months, he is not required to. Well, the United States government, including the Department of Defense, is at risk of allowing some of its most sensitive information to be seen by a Chinese company whose chairman has close ties to that country's Communist Party. Well, when China, for China, by America means something quite different than it does when it's spoken by an American uh, in the United States. International Data Corp, or IDC, markets itself as the premier global market intelligence firm. It specializes in information technology, IT, and security, and numbers among the clients, the National Security Administration, the Department of Defense, Commerce, and, and uh, Energy, 
the U.S. Census Bureau and the General Services Administration. Well, earlier this year, IDC's parent company based in Boston was purchased by China Oceanwide Holdings, a Chinese conglomerate whose president and chairman has been a member of the People's Political uh, uh, Consultative Conference, which advises the Chinese Communist Party. The contracts that IDC and now China Oceanwide hold with the various government departments are small, less than $100,000 each. IDC provides technical advice, consultations, solutions to its clients, and that means that it has access to sensitive IT data and is uh, its IT security recommendations could potentially influence government procurements. And that access could now be available to IDC's new owner, China Oceanwide. Now, IC, IDC rather declined to comment for uh, the inquiries into this, but Patrick Evans, a Pentagon spokesman, acknowledged the Pentagon has contracts with IDC. In a written statement, he says the Department of Defense does not, nor does the U.S. government, have a blanket ban on products from Chinese companies, and the Department of Defense does not blacklist suppliers or individual products. And one would wonder, even if national security might be compromised. Well, whether or not that's the case... I'm speculating. The sale of IDC was approved by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, a branch of the Treasury Department that assesses potential risks from the purchases of U.S. companies by foreigners. Uh, the um, Again, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States is a broken process. Dean Pops, a former uh, acting assistant secretary of the Army for Acquisitions, Logistics and Technology under the administration of George W. Bush and Barack Obama. Since it was created 40 years ago, it's been driven by business interests, not national security. No one is in charge, which raises some serious questions. To be sure, Chinese companies have been on a U.S. buying spree in recent years. In 2013, uh, Changhua International purchased Smithfield Foods, the world's largest producer of pork. In 2005, Beijing-based Le- uh, Lenovo uh, bought IBM's personal computer business, a sale that the Pentagon warned posed a security risk. In 2014, Lenovo followed up by acquiring Motorola Mobility, a marker of mobile phones, um, uh, rather a maker from Google. China Oceanside now owns 29% of Lenovo. All those deals were approved by this um, organization, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It is a stunning story of the stealing of America, although it's the purchase of America, but having access to technology and sensitive information. It's been done under our very noses, one blip at a time. It's a stunning story, uh, says Pops. It's been um, uh, now we now rather uh, know how our enemy operates. It's uh, theft of intellectual property. It's theft of trade secrets. In, and in production, they outdo us because they don't have environmental restrictions. The levers are all over uh, the place, but the American people haven't gotten the message yet. He's not the only one concerned with the approval procedures in place, but it is an ongoing story that threatens the security and vital um, uh, interests, intellectual property, and so on of the United States. Finally, Oregon lawmakers and the public got their first look at a proposed 10-year, $8.2 billion transportation infrastructure spending bill on Wednesday night. Uh, Out of Salem, as expected, the 298-page bill would impose higher gas taxes, 
increased vehicle title and registration fees, tolls on portions of I-5, and a payroll tax to fund public transit. It also contained a few surprises. Large cities like Portland would have to salt at least 25% of their roads if more than two inches of snow falls over the next, over a 12-hour period, rather. And a proposed tax on new car sales also would apply to used cars. Well, the public will have a chance to weigh in on the bill at hearings June the 5th, 6th, and 7th, so that's right around the corner. Lawmakers asked staff to compile a summary of the weighty bill's provisions as well as an index ahead of the hearings. You hand even uh, a reporter or anyone else this, uh, and they're going to freak out. That's a quote from Senator Rod Monroe, a Democrat out of Portland, at a meeting at the Joint Committee on Transportation and Modernization. Well, among the provisions, the current 30 cent per gallon state fuel tax would increase by six cents next year and another two cents every other year up until 2026. So that would continue to rise incrementally. For 2018-2019, registration fees would increase by $15 or $100 for electric vehicles. Uh, for 2020 and 21, an additional fee would be levied based on a vehicle's mileage, $15 for vehicles getting 0 to 19 miles per hour, 25 for those 20 to 49 miles per hour, and so on. A 0.75% excise tax on dealer vehicle sales would begin next year. That's down from the 1% originally proposed. A statewide employee payroll tax of 0.1% would would uh, take effect next year. It would cost a minimum wage worker about $20 per year or a worker with an annual salary of about $50,000, $50 a year. may not sound like much, but you add that with all the other little fees and taxes that we pay. And ultimately, we end up paying a great deal. And a 3% tax on sales of new adult bicycles costing $500 or more would begin next year. The committee has been working on this for a year to gather public input and put together uh, the bill. And again, there's a public comment period, the 5th, 6th and 7th of this month. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Sterling Burnett with the Heartland Research. Uh, He's, uh, I should say, Heartland Institute. He's a research fellow on environment policy and managing editor of Environment and Climate News. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you know, and we discussed earlier in the program, the president has now withdrawn from the Paris Climate Agreement, which isn't a singular event. It's something of a process. But it took some courage in the face of significant pressure from many world leaders as well as leaders here at home. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, some of the implications of this decision uh, to the U.S. economy. And joining us to do just that is Dr. Sterling Burnett. He is a Heartland Research Fellow on Environmental Policy and the Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. Thank you so much for joining us. And let me just begin by asking you to uh, to comment on the decision and the announcement that the president made earlier today. Well, you know, it was uh, it was a bold move on his part. I had been fervently hoping for it uh, since he ran for office, since he uh, promised to withdraw from Paris as a candidate. I, quite frankly, you know, he, he came under a lot of criticism from some people saying, why hasn't he acted before now? I, I think that it was fair for him to take his time and make a, a sound decision based on, you know, the new information that he got once he became president. He wasn't privy to all the things, all of the, the, the the considerations that went into the negotiations before he was president, he uh, he had to take his time to consider the facts. But in the end, I think he came to the right decision, the decision that uh, uh, he tended towards 
as candidate because this is, as he said, a bad deal for America. In, in fact, it's a bad deal for the world. The Paris Climate Agreement would do nothing to prevent future warming if people are really worried about that. But it would hamstring the U.S. economy in comparison to uh, our global, our geopolitical and economic competitors, and it would not help the developing world. In fact, you know, despite all the claim, you know, the arguments about how much money we have to throw at them, and we would. The Green Climate Fund is pretty, pretty, uh, you know, $100 billion a year and more. Uh, if it can get funded, it's still a drop in the bucket. What those economies would be able to do if they could just use the kind of fossil fuels that we have used to develop and grow their own economies and become prosperous. They need jobs. They need economic growth. They need prosperity, just like people in the West and poor global bureaucrats and environmental activists, misanthropic environmental activists, quite frankly, to try and deny the developing world the ability to uh, to prosper and the, uh, to develop is just morally wrong. There was a, a quote from a former NASA scientist and leading climate alarmist, Dr. James Hansen, and he put it uh, this way in response to the, Pir- the Paris Agreement. Uh, he called it a fraud, uh, a fake, just worthless words. Now, he was he's a climate alarmist, and yet he looked at the climate agreement and saw that it really ha- would have no impact whatsoever, but the cost would be uh, significant. Um, there's a lot of uh, hysteria going on right now about what this means uh, for uh, those who um, are concerned about the climate as opposed to what the agreement could actually achieve. Your thoughts on the disparity between the two? Well, you know, that's the, that's the funny thing is there's so much hand-wringing over the fact that we're pulling out. Um, when, in fact, even the UN's own environment program, I mean, they looked at this. MIT looked at this, and they said, if everyone, you know, no one cheats, everybody keeps their promises under the agreement, how much effect will it have on the environment? It won't. It won't prevent future temperature rise. It won't uh, hit the target set for in the in the goal. You have to keep ratcheting up the goals more and more, cutting emissions more and more. And that's the problem. There's no end in sight. Even if you believe, you know, humans are causing dangerous climate change, this disagreement does nothing to fix it. And so our withdrawal from the agreement doesn't change the status quo at all. It's, it's not as if it would have had a big impact. This is all symbol and no substance. Yeah. What? Where do we go from here? Uh, I know that um, the president said that he was uh, going to begin immediately renegotiating, and it wasn't clear what he meant well, by that. I, you know, quite frankly, that, that, that worries me. Uh, he, I'm glad he pulled out rather than trying to renegotiate a better deal within the framework of Paris. But the truth is there's no better deal to be had. Any deal that requires the U.S. at all to restrict fossil fuel development and use hurts our economy. It puts people out of work or stops them from getting good jobs. Any deal that requires us to subsidize, to send money overseas while we're wearing these huge deficits that the, and, and debt that the president himself mentioned, that requires us to send money to India, one of the largest economies in the world and one of the fastest growing economies in the world, so they can uh, take technologies we've developed and use them, the so-called clean technologies, and avoid uh, using coal, which in fact they're not doing. They're developing hundreds of coal-fired power plants. 
It's crazy. We're supposed to pay them when they're increasing their emissions? We're supposed to help China uh, with technology transfers when they're not even obligated to reduce their emissions at all until 2030. And even then, by the way, they don't say they'll reduce their emissions. They say they expect that their emissions will peak by 2030. Well, what does that mean? What if they peak at double where they are today or at four times where they are today? That means that nothing the rest of the world does makes a difference if they're really worried about CO2 causing climate change. Now, the Heartland In the end, this oh, was go a ahead. trade treaty. This was, a, this was an economic mm-hmm. treaty. This was not an environment treaty. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, the Heartland Institute has been following um, the Paris Climate Agreement and all of the attendant parts uh, for quite some time. Where do you see the Heartland Institute's focused attention at this point, given the fact that, at least for the moment, as we understand it, the United States is withdrawing from uh, that treaty? Um, where do you see your focus, and what are your areas of greater uh, greatest concern? You know, I don't. I don't think that we stop focusing on on Paris itself right now. I mean, he's pulling this out, but it's not clear to me what the mechanism is. Whether he's just withdrawing from the, taking our signature off the Paris Agreement, or whether he's going to withdraw us from the UN framework on climate change, mm-hmm. which actually gets us out much sooner. We we're going to continue to encourage him to take that course if that's not what he's doing today. In addition, we'll continue to look at the science because we don't think the science is settled. We think that we still have more to understand about the global climate and how it works. We uh, will look at the science. We'll look at any other uh, regulations and policies, both existing and those that will be proposed. The, you know, for their impacts on domestic energy development use, for their impacts on uh, on the environment, on uh, people's property rights, and the ability of people to freely choose their own uh, course of life. To to you know, for instance, automobiles. We're going to continue looking at restrictions on automobiles via um, uh, uh, via fuel economy standards, where the government tries to force people into smaller and smaller cars which don't get the kids to the soccer game, the entire team, which can't haul the boat, that, that they place fuel economy above what people actually choose, which is comfort and power. Um, so we're, gonna, we're not going to change our ways. We're going to keep focusing on the things that uh, make America run good and, and, and keep people free. Yeah, and we'll wait and see what specifically the president meant when he made his announcement earlier today. Thank you so much for uh, talking with us. I appreciate your, uh, your input very much. Thanks for having me on and happy to be on again if you need me. Thank you. Again, uh, Dr. Sterling Burnett is a Heartland Research Fellow on Environmental Policy and the Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News on the President's announced withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. And as he pointed out, there's a variety of ways to interpret what the President meant. Is it the framework that we've now withdrawn from or is it the removing our signature? And it's not, again, a singular event. It will require a process for that to happen, but we'll wait for some clarification uh, as time goes on. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we return, we're going to talk with Jean Mancini. She's the president of March for Life. She's also a co-signer of the letter suggesting investigating and defunding Planned Parenthood that was sent to the Attorney General and the Acting Director of the FBI. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, March for Life sent both Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Acting Director of the FBI, Andrew McCabe, 
a letter urging them and their respective departments to investigate Planned Parenthood for past paid fetal tissue transfers. The letter was co-signed by leading pro-life organizations and requests that the Justice Department continue the investigative work of the 114th Congress select panel, which made 15 criminal and regulatory referrals of uh, tissue procurement of Planned Parenthood and its affiliates. Well, here to talk with us about that letter is Jean uh, Mancini. She's the president of March for Life and co-signer of said letter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Well, we've been following the misdeeds of Planned Parenthood for a long time. That even predates the videos that confirmed what many of us believed was uh, was uh, taking place there. But let's start with the uh, the investigation that the 114th Congress Select Panel uh, did and the recommendations that they made. Yeah, you bet. So, of course, we had uh, really two different committees. We had one on the House side and one on the Senate side. And they spent, you know, extensive um, time and energy looking into what had actually happened with those videos that the Center for Medical Progress um, did, you know, in terms of their undercover footage. Um, And what they found is that there were all sorts of violations related to laws um, having to do with the protection of human subjects in research, with patient privacy, um, with late-term illegal abortions, with born-alive infants, with the public funding of fetal tissue research, and all sorts of problems. So you mentioned that the House found 15 counts of criminal and regulatory uh, problems that they referred to the Justice Department and the Senate side found seven counts. So we're now asking the Justice Department to, to rightly take this up. Unfortunately, during the Obama administration, they turned a blind eye, you know, to what was happening. We know that Obama is close with Planned Parenthood and their funding increased exponentially during his administration. And he just turned a blind eye to this rather than do the right thing. So we're asking now during a Trump administration that they would take this up. Now, this letter that we've been referring to uh, that uh, features the signatures of a a number of pro-life organizations came at the same time that the latest uh, undercover video, which, by the way, I put on the Georgia and Rice Show Facebook page, if anyone wants to check that out, uh, continues to spark controversy. And some of the statements that are made in that uh, video are as gross as those we've heard uh, previously. But again, it just makes the point that uh, Planned Parenthood directors and others in that video admit to gross illegalities, uh, which I won't go into detail at this moment, um, but it, it really does beg the question, what will be done? Now, tell us about this letter, who's signing on to it, and uh, what you hope it will accomplish. Sure. And if, if I might, I'd, I'd love to answer that question, but just to tag on to what you were Please. just mentioning there about this video released last week. So know about that video. Your audience should know this, that that video has been sealed to the public because of a lawsuit. But essentially, when David Daleiden and the Center for Medical Progress released those videos, and we all remember back in the summer of 2015, he was working slowly but surely towards releasing this video that came out last week. Why? Because it was the most damning of all of the videos. And it's undercover footage of the National Abortion Federation Conference. And there's hours upon hours upon hours, and it's horrific, as you're hinting at uh, very graciously. I mean, it's really hard, you know, to watch. And so I'm glad that you've got it posted on your Facebook page because it's really important that people, you know, take a few minutes, even though it's so hard, and spread this around because it's really important that people see what's happening in the abortion industry. Um, And I want to mention as well that, 
you know, Planned Parenthood, of course, is under attack right now and will potentially be defunded um, in a variety of different ways, either through the health care bill that was just passed um, or with the president's new budget, which is even a fuller defunding of Planned Parenthood. And, and they're a well-funded organization with an over a billion dollar budget, and they've got a great PR team. And we know that in the weeks that David, the weeks following David Daleiden's initial release of those videos back in 2015, Cecile Richard, the president of Planned Parenthood, even did a videotape apologizing for the behavior of her employees. And then since then, they've been doing damage control, you know, and they've really got these false talking points saying that these videos were discredited and that they were spliced and manipulated. But it's important to know that a forensic analysis claimed that that's not true. I mean, that these videos are 100% authentic and um, that the real, you know, folks that need to be looked into here are are, um, Planned Parenthood and the other groups that were involved. Now, to answer your question, I know that was a very long winded. <laughs> it was worth hearing, though. Thank you. Good, good. Thanks. Uh, what what can we do and what does this letter do? Well, the letter rightly puts some pressure on the Trump administration, and it follows up to a letter that was sent by Senator Grassley asking the Justice Department and the FBI to look further into um, essentially to take up the work of the panel and now look further into all of these referrals that were given, these potential criminal and regulatory problems. And, um, you know, it really, I mentioned that the Obama administration turned a blind eye. It's, it's the rightful place of the Justice Department to be looking into if there were any illegalities. And that's really the, what needs to happen at the next step. And we anticipate that the Trump administration, that you know, they've been very pro-life thus far. We anticipate that they will take this up. And um, we plan to continue beating the drum here. Early next week, the March for Life will send out an alert asking everybody on our list to contact the Trump administration and the Justice department to continue um, looking into this. Now, as you mentioned, the previous administration was not interested in pursuing uh, these allegations that really came from the horse's mouth, if you will. Um, Do you think that you have a more favorable hearing and opportunity under this current administration and Justice Department? I think so. We'll see. I think they've had the FBI and the Justice Department have had a lot going on. Yeah, haven't they? My (laughs) sense is that's probably why uh, Senator Grassley hadn't yet received a response from his letter, which I think was sent about three weeks ago. Um, I do. We've seen in many ways that this administration and, you know, people have lots of different opinions on them, but on the pro-life issues, they've been really strong and courageous. We were delighted at the March for Life to have the vice president speak for the first time ever. And that was one week after he was inaugurated. And it was no easy task working with Secret Service and pulling that off. Um, before they were ever even inaugurated, we were working on all of the details. So, and then since then, we've seen, you know, decision after policy decision after policy decision, including the Mexico City policy reinstatement and then expanding. We've seen um, hints of the HHS mandate being lifted um, in the last few days and lots of great personnel appointments that are pro-life. So, yes, uh, I, I'm very hopeful that the Justice Department and the Trump administration will take this up. Now, if uh, the Justice Department under this administration does decide to do that, uh, and given the fact that the uh, 114th uh, House and Senate, uh, Congress, House and Senate, both came up with uh, recommendations, what what could happen with Planned Parenthood? You've already mentioned the possibility of defunding, but if there were criminal charges, for example, uh, or if there were regulatory referrals, what would likely, what scenario might we anticipate? 
Well, you know, with each law, things are very unique, but sometimes there are fines that would be um, included. There sometimes might be different sort of disciplinary actions um, in terms of funding and, and what have you, uh, especially research funding that they're receiving. Um, so I think it would be, you know, along those lines, uh, fines, et cetera. Well, we'll certainly continue to follow with uh, great interest uh, what happens next and uh, when or if you get a response. I expect, as you pointed out, there's so much going on at this point. It may be delayed, uh, but uh, I would expect that you'd get some kind of response at some point. We certainly hope so. Well, thank you so much for your work and for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you doing the story. We're talking with uh, Jean Mancini. She's president of March for Life. She's also one of the co-signers of the letter we mentioned that uh, was uh, sent to the attorney general and the uh, Acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe urging them and their respective departments to investigate Planned Parenthood for past paid fetal tissue transfers. Among those uh, signatories, I'll name their organizations rather than their names, given that you'd probably recognize the organization more than the individual names. Uh, that they are representing. Uh, March for Life Education and Defense Fund, March for Life Action, that's their PAC, um, American Conservative Union, Americans United for Life, American Values, Christian Coalition of America, Concerned Women for America, Coalition for a Strong America, Solid Deo Partners, Eagle Forum, Eagle Forum Education and Legal Defense Fund, um, Government Affairs, Family Research uh, Council, Liberty Council Action, Liberty Council, One Nation Under God Foundation, Susan B. Anthony List, uh, Kenneth uh, Timmerman, who is an author, and the Tradition Family Property, Inc. You're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to um, wrap things up. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. As you know, our community has been in uh, in grief over the loss of two of our citizens, the injury of a third and the events that surrounded the uh, the stabbing their stabbing deaths and injuries this past Friday. Uh, for the first time, we've heard from the family of Jeremy Christian, who is the perpetrator. They've issued a statement of condolence, and I wanted to share that with you. They issued the statement this afternoon. They offered their sympathy for people affected by the racially motivated attack last week that killed two people, wounded another, and certainly intimidated and frightened two women on that uh, on that Max uh, line. Christian is suspected of the attack on the Max train. There's no real question that he was the perpetrator, but it was at the Hollywood station. He was arraigned on Tuesday on nine charges, two counts of aggravated murder, attempted aggravated murder, first degree assault, two counts of intimidation, and three counts of unlawful use of a weapon. Now, we uh, we extend and rightly so sympathy to those who were directly involved, the two uh, women, two girls that were the subject of the rant that led to the events that followed. We have sympathy for those who uh, encourage step forward to try to protect them and de-escalate the situation that cost two their lives and another a serious injury. Uh, but there's also the family of the perpetrator. You don't know much about the the family and you wonder, did they hold his same views? Um, but as we're praying for our, our city, as we're praying for those involved, we need to remember this family. And I think this statement tells us something about them and the devastation they feel. Uh, he bears their name and everything that's said about them is some or said about him rather is somehow connected to them. Uh, there are people who know that they this individual is a son, a brother, a, a you know a nephew. So remembering them in prayer is, uh, is a good thing as well to bring comfort in in the same way that we have been comforted. Well, their statement says the Christian family, and that's their last name. That doesn't. Uh, 
uh, denote their um, worldview. But the Christian family offers their heartfelt condolences to those men who lost their lives at the hands of their son on May the 26th, 2017. Now, I should mention this was uh, issued by their attorney, David Lesh. So it's it's not first person. So he's referring to the Christian family that asked uh, him to issue this statement on their behalf. It goes on. We offer our deepest sympathies to the families of the deceased, to the young women harassed, and to everyone who tried to protect these young women. We cannot begin to understand this senseless act. We abhor violence, racism, and bigotry. We are praying for healing for everyone affected by this horrible action, the actions of our son. And that ends the statement. It's difficult to comprehend how they must feel about what happened at the hands of their son. And as their note here says, it's difficult to comprehend the actions of the little boy they raised into a man that now is in, um, involved in this kind of activity. I mentioned before he has something of a rap sheet, so it wouldn't be altogether surprising that he's capable of uh, law-breaking, but this, uh, of course, takes it to a whole different level. Uh, there was an attempt to reach the attorney, uh, who issued the statement on behalf of the family that was not successful. But on the 26th, you recall, uh, these attacks horrified the city of Portland, made headlines all around the country. Police and witnesses say that the perpetrator yelled racist and anti-Muslim remarks to the two girls on the TriMet Max train. Um, he is accused of stabbing three men who tried to intervene, Rick Best and Talison um, uh, Michi died and Micah Fletcher uh, was wounded, but is currently recovering. But I thought it was uh, at least a little bit helpful uh, to understand the family a bit better, who denounces the actions of their son, what motivated him to act as violently as he did in ending the lives of two and um, hurting another. Also, I wanted to remind you that there will be a large police presence, uh, we're told, at the Portland Sunday afternoon event as several rallies are now planned with conflicting messages and within close proximity of each other. Now, the original um, event uh, was supposed to be singular. The demonstrators, uh, they're telling us, could now impact travel in that area. And I'll give you more details on that in a moment. Police suggested visitors uh, be prepared to take alternate routes or routes, depending on how you uh, say it. The free speech rally, which is the original event that the mayor attempted to have uh, canceled, is hosted by uh, the group Patriot Prayer. It's scheduled for 2 p.m. in Terry Shrunk Plaza. Um, as of late Thursday morning, 373 people had signed up to attend and participate in that event. 726 said that they were interested, so it's not clear what the size of that event will be, particularly in light of recent events. Several other groups are planning nearby rallies in opposition to this event, including one called Portland Stands United Against Hate, just across Southwest 4th Avenue at City Hall. At 1230, with about 1,000 people saying they plan to come, 3,300 expressing interest. So again, it's not clear how large that event will be. Another demonstration called Defend Portland, No Nazis on Our Street, is scheduled for noon just across Southwest Madison Street on Chapman Square, with about 162 people saying they plan to attend 562 expressing interest in attending. So three very large or potentially large events in close proximity to one another. Now, Portland Police Spokesman Sergeant Pete Simpson um, said the large police presence is partly due to online threats of violence between some of the groups and some have been sparring here in the Portland area for some time. Uh, He goes on to say and is quoted, Uh, by KGW News that due to these threats and the potential for violence, persons attending any of these events are discouraged from bringing any weapons, 
firearms, knives, etc., or items that can be used as weapons, sticks, bats, poles, rocks, fireworks, incendiary devices, etc., to any of the events. He said in a press release on Thursday, prohibited items may be seized by police, and if in, a, in violation of city, state, or federal law, the possessor may be arrested and charged criminally. He added that the city of Portland has not issued any permits for street marches, so participants planning to march should follow all laws and remain on the sidewalks. And we've seen how that goes here in the city of Portland. So um, we'll just have to wait and see if if people this time around are willing to comply. And while police have um, have seen no specific indicators that the events will disrupt traffic or transit, they do encourage drivers and riders to be aware of that potential and plan alternate routes. He added that the the goal of the officers. Um, uh, who will be on hand will be to provide a safe environment for participants and non-participants alike and to ensure the peaceful exercise of the First Amendment. Um, Oregon State Police, Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, Federal Protective Services, Department of Homeland Security, Federal Bureau of Investigation, United States Attorney's Office, Multnomah County District Attorney's Office, Portland Fire and Rescue. They're all helping the Portland Police Bureau ensure public safety. And he also offered a statement on behalf of the Bureau saying that the Portland Police Bureau intends to share pertinent information with the community on the day of the events uh, through its main Twitter account at Portland Police. Life-threatening emergencies should be reported to 911 and, and so on. Anyone with information about criminal behavior is encouraged to communicate with them as well. So there is uh, anticipation of what could be a very disruptive uh, Sunday afternoon. Many of us will be in, in uh, church, and I hope that we will be praying for our city uh, before and after these, during and after these events. Well, tomorrow is Fun Friday. as a juxtaposition for you. We're going to lighten up, so I hope you can join us to do the same. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.